You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Probably one of the things that uh, that I loved or that I that I liked the most about when my kids were little was uh, being able to read to them. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I don't want to brag, but uh, I was pretty good at it. I I used. Uh, I guess I was bragging. Um, I like to use different voices, and, and I, I like to tell the story. I like to get into the story with them. I, I probably didn't do it enough, but I enjoyed uh, being able to sit down with the kids, being able to read to them, and, uh, and just to explore the different vistas and, and discoveries and, and be involved in the, whether it was a short story or whether it was a long story, the unfolding drama that, that kind of came along with, with all of that. And, uh, and often, some of the stories that we would read together began with that often used and very familiar phrase, once upon a time. And I don't know if you uh, are familiar um, with a lot of those different stories, but they kind of, when we hear that term, once upon a time, we know that... Um, we know that there's more drama coming, right? We know that there is this unfolding story that is about to take place. And, um, and it, it's a signal for us that, that something fantastic is coming. At least it was for me. As we come to a book like the book of Esther, um, we could almost begin the book of Esther with that often used phrase, once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful Jewish girl who became the queen of Persia. It actually is this kind of Cinderella story. It's not quite rags to riches, no. Um, But certainly this is a radical transformation in the life of this young Jewish girl that we know to be Esther. I don't know how familiar you are with the story, Uh, The story is set against the background of an attempt led by one man, an evil villain, by the name of Haman, to try and exterminate the Jewish population. An entire Jewish population, the entire Jewish population that was residing within the kingdom of Persia at the time. Uh, This is the book, this is the story that we want to spend some time in over the next number of weeks. And uh, I hope that you are excited about it. I, I certainly am. It is a, it really is. It is a fantastic story. And I would encourage you, uh, as we go through this book, just uh, in your quiet time, in your personal Bible study or Bible reading time, just take a, a day off from, you know, whatever your plan is or whatever you're supposed to be reading at the time and read through the book of Esther. It's, it's a great story. And uh, so as we begin this morning, I want, to, uh, I want to just read the first nine verses to just kind of wet our whistle. We're not going to spend very much time within the story itself this morning, but I do want us to, to just remind ourselves of what transpires at the beginning. Uh, I, I listened to a couple of different preachers preach on 
Esther this week, and one of them said, I'm just going to read the first nine verses because after that there's a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. And the, the way to solve that is you just don't read them. Uh, and so that is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. Esther chapter 1 and, first, and verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, maybe in your Bible it says Xerxes, same guy. Okay? The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia in 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and his servants. And the army of Persia and, the, uh, and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were with him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the, ro- and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This was a large and a long party. Uh, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, a very long feast. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and miller, uh, marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of, I can't pronounce that, sorry, uh, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There was no compulsion. And there is no compulsion, sorry. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired, and Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. The Persian Empire, at this moment in time that we just read about, was probably, arguably, it just was. It was the greatest empire of the day. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. It was probably the greatest empire that the world would ever see until the Roman Empire. Um, Alexander is in there at at, at this point, but um, probably the Persians were the ones that that took over from there. Persia, the kingdom of Persia, ruled over Palestine for over 200 years. And uh, I know that some of you, when I start talking about history, you kind of turn your minds off. And uh, and I don't want to spend any or very little, I do want to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm not going to. Uh, I, I don't want to spend much time on the history and the geography of the book. Uh, I know that some of you are going to be thankful for that. But just so you know, just as a way of reference, if you're reading the book of Esther and then you kind of turn the pages and you read the book of Daniel, or you read the book of Ezra, or Nehemiah, what you're going to find is the same kind of time period, give or take, you know, 10, 20, 30, whatever years, something. But you're going to discover that these books, these time periods, these people, they all relate to this particular time 
uh, and in certain aspects to the exact geography that is contained here. It's really all around the same time. It tells us that this is Susa. Uh, we read about Susa when we studied the book of Nehemiah. Susa was the, the winter capital of the Persia. Um, and so they spent a lot of time there. Esther, just by way of trivia, in case you go to a trivia where they talk about Esther, I don't know. Um, it's one of only two books in the Bible that is named for a lady. The other one is? Thank you very much. You guys are so smart. Uh, in Ruth, we are given this picture of the domestic life, right? This, uh, the domestic life in a village, the glimpse of a life that is lived under God in the context of poverty. That's Ruth. Esther is on the complete other end of the spectrum, um, Esther isn't like Ruth eking out an existence. Esther lives in a palace. We're taken to the grandeur and the extravagance of the Persian Empire and the palace, the royal palace of King Ahasuerus. So with all this in mind, I want us to kind of ease our way into the pages of the story. And by ease our way into the pages of the story really not spend any time in the pages of the story at all today. Um, I want to consider three big things. Okay, three big things. I don't even have a, a PowerPoint today because if you can't remember these three big things, there is no hope for you. I, I just, I'm going to just say that. Uh, perhaps, you know, and I know that this has sort of happened in the past. I know that you know this about me. I love history. I, know, I love biblical history. I love going through the Old Testament books because there's so many fantastic stories in the Old Testament. Esther is one of those stories. And I know that that is not everyone's kind of... Um, I don't know what the word is. Jazz. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I know that that's not everybody's preference. I, I get that. Okay, and so maybe you are here this morning and you have already nudged your neighbor and said, here we go again. Or you have said, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to study these really old books and these old stories? What possible relevance is there in spending any time as dwellers of the 21st century digging around in the events that were taking place maybe more than 2,500 years ago, what possible benefit could there be? And that is a good question. And I'm going to attempt to answer that question this morning, or at least maybe give us some, some things to consider. That's the question that any sensible person, you are sensible, well done. Uh, that's the question that any sensible person would be asking. But it is really, when you ask what possible relevance could it be to, to study the book of Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, uh, all those, what possible relevance, that kind of question that if you are asking that, it is really a question about the nature of the Bible as a whole. And when we study any book in the Bible, and particularly one like this, 
as we come to the detail, uh, as we come to the details that are <coughs> provided for us in the document, it's important, as we've said so many times before, that we see things in light of. Here's the first big thing. In case you are a note taker, it's important that we see things in light of the big picture. That's the first thing that we want to talk about. That's our first big thing, the big picture. And I want to spend some time actually making sure that we don't leave anybody behind here as we study the book of Esther. And the way to do that, the way to be left behind is to fail to understand what the big picture is. Because it's way bigger than you. It's way bigger than me. And it's way bigger than Esther. Everybody with me? We've got to understand the big picture, okay? <clears throat> a man by the name of Christopher Ashe, he uh, once wrote this in a book about biblical interpretation. This is what he said. He said, when we are doing biblical interpretation, big words, right? We are not in a playground having fun and making it mean what we want it to mean and caring little if others make it mean something else. When we are doing our biblical interpretation, we're not in a playground, having fun, interacting with the text, bringing our horizon to the biblical horizon, trying to fuse them together and essentially ending up with a product which says, this is what the Bible means to me. That is not what we want to do. And then he goes on and he says, the real test of biblical interpretation, everybody with me still? Good. It's not the discovery of what it means to me, but it is the discovery of what it means. There is an important distinction. We are engaged in the life and death business of discerning the meaning that is there in the Bible. Dare I say that one of the problems, one of the massively huge problems in the world, in church, in church, universal, in church today, is that there are a lot of people that are looking into the Bible and they're trying to find something there that, or they're, they're reading something and they're saying to themselves, well, this is what it means to me. And I recognize that maybe when you read it, you're going to say, well, this is what it means to me and those two things are going to be different. We can't do that. And, and I recognize that that is tough. That is hard, Okay. But we have to make sure that we don't slip up. That when we study the Bible, we make sure that we're not making it relevant just to us or, or to what it means to us. The Bible is like, it's, it's not like any other book because the Bible, it is the living word of the living God. It is a, it is a book that 
that understands the readers as the readers seek to understand the book. And every book of the Bible is God's word. And the events that are recorded in the books of the Bible are in the books of the Bible because God wants them to be in the Bible. All the events that we read in the Bible, the reason that we have them as the Bible is because God has given us the Bible. And he's given us all these books. The reason that the events are there is because he wants them to be there. Paul said in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There is a hope that stands the test of time. There is a hope that faces off with, with death and the grave. Where is this hope? It is found in the one with whom or of whom the, the scriptures speak. Namely, in Jesus. Peter said, for, for in him... For in Jesus we are born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when we read an ancient account like the book of Esther, it is absolutely vital that we are aware of the fact that God is working out everything according to not just a plan for Esther, but for a unified plan of his own that began in eternity and moves to eternity. And we're somewhere in the middle of that. It's the big picture. It's hard to wrap our mind around. I get, I get it. But, um, I mean, Paul said in, in Ephesians, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. According to the purpose of his will. Okay, that's important. God has a will. God has a purpose. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose that he set forth in Christ. How do we understand the mystery of God's will? That's difficult to do. I get it. But how are we to understand it? Well, Paul says it was set forth or it was presented in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So here's my point. As we stand way, 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 way back from the book of Esther, um, we're not even touching Esther right now. I mean, we're going to. We're, we're going to read this book that has to do with this evil villain by the name of Haman. We have this little Jewish guy named Mordecai. Uh, we have this beautiful girl named Esther. We have this egotistical king named Ahasuerus. Uh, We delve into the details of this, but what do we need to know? Well, what we need to know is that God is the author of the book. And he is the one who has retained all the details for our consideration. He has a unified plan for his history, and and his plan ultimately is to unite all things in and through the work of his son, Jesus. So that's why the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, are emphasized again and again and again because that's the climax of the Bible. And Esther is part of the buildup to that climax. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled. What, 
what is the time fulfilling or, or, or what was fulfilled? Well, it was when Jesus came on the scene. Mark is saying that God has been unfolding his plan and his purpose throughout all the ages of time and now he's coming to fulfillment here in, in Mark's time, in, in Mark's teaching. And then Jesus says, the fulfillment is here in, in my life itself, in my death, in my resurrection, in my ascension, in my return. So, okay, I know that I'm using lots of words and I'm trying to get to the point or trying to make you understand the point all of this all of what I have said to make this point the pictures and the promises and the symbols every one of them in the Old Testament are to be understood as pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan everybody with me so that's why when you get into uh, when you get bogged down in your own Bible reading in the book of Leviticus and you read about, you know, all the laws and all the cleaning of the utensils and the bones and the blood and there's so much that could just go, you just read it and go, what? When you get bogged down there in Leviticus, you just need to take a step back from the book of Leviticus. You need to stand a little bit a ways back from the painting and understand this. God is working everything out. He is putting together a people that are distinguishable from all the nations of the world. They are going to be marked out by some certain symbolic gestures. That's what Leviticus is about. They're going to be marked as those who are trusting in the promises that he has given to them as for, for the forgiveness of sin. But if you get too close... All you can see is, you know, all the rules and regulations and the blood and the cleaning and, the, and, and all that sort of stuff. But if you take a step back, what you see is God is preserving and preparing a people, his people. Do you see what I mean? So, for example, when you get to Esther and you read uh, Esther chapter 3 and verse Six, it says, but he disdained, he is uh, the evil villain, Haman, uh, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, not just Mordecai, who he hated, but every one of them. He wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet. And he actually had the power to do it. But how are we to understand that? Why would someone hate so much that he would want to do something like that? How are we to understand that? Well, uh, don't want to give you whiplash, but you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and 15. Uh, Genesis chapter 3.15, you'll probably be familiar with it. You've probably read the, the, the story, and you've probably read that verse where uh, God is speaking to the serpent in the garden, and remember he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, hostility, hostility and conflict between the offspring and her offspring, and he, he will bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. So in other words, this, I mean, God's not talking about a 50-50 fight, but he is saying this. He says, you're going to be able to do certain things, but it's only going to affect his heel. Uh, ultimately, he is going to crush your head. Um, I do want to dazzle you a little bit more with my uh, trivia knowledge. Uh, this is called, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. And what that is, is basically just this idea in theological terms, it's the beginning of the story of the gospel. It's the beginning of the story of the good news. And it says there that somebody is going to come, the seed of the woman who will deal with the evil one and is in conf- uh, and will deal with the evil one, the evil one who is in conflict with the very purposes of God. So we know that they're speaking about Jesus here, right? So from the very beginning of Genesis, you realize that there's this battle that's going on between the forces of evil and the forces of good. The work of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God for redemption are being opposed at every point. And you find that there are characters all the way through the Old Testament which are essentially seeking to do the devil's work. Haman is one of those guys. He's an evil villain. New Testament, Matthew. Herod. Herod would be one of those guys. What did Herod want to do? He wanted to wipe out an entire generation of two-year-olds and under. Just in case they were somebody that would threaten his throne. He wasn't able to do that. But what was Herod trying to do? He was trying to exterminate the line from which the Messiah would come. So, I mean... So the, the parallels to Esther are, are real there, and there, there's, there's, there's this phenomenal conflict that runs all the way through the Bible, all the way through the story, and it gives significance to what this evil character in, in Esther is trying to do, because if you think about it, if Haman had been successful in his plan, and he comes close, if he had been successful, the Jewish people would have been destroyed. Almost entirely. And the saving work that God promised in and through the descendants of Abraham, it would have come to an end. And there would have been no fulfillment in Jesus because there would have been no Jesus. There would have been no gospel. There would have been no church. There would have been no reason for you to be here. There would have been no reason for me to preach or you to listen. That's what makes this so significant. Even the apparently minor details of the Old Testament stories are part of the purpose of God in redemption. A purpose of to unify all things and through the person and the work of his son. So what is happening in the book of Esther, and we'll go through this, but what's happening is that God is preserving his people. And the reason why he wants to preserve his people is because out of those people, his Messiah will come. And that should help us understand the big picture. How all biblical history is important to study. It's part of God's plan. Because otherwise, you just drop into Esther and you do, and, and you can read it, and it is a great story, but you can do all sorts of things with it. You can do all things with all sorts of things with the whole Bible, actually. You can teach stories in this way that simply say, Well, Esther was this really nice person, and you should be nice. 
Or you could say, Haman, he was a really terrible, evil person. You should not be terrible and evil. Um, The king, Ahasuerus, he was egotistical and proud, and you should not be that way. All those things are true, but it's more than that. God is doing something way bigger than just preserving the Jewish people in the, in the Persian Empire. Far more significant than the Roman Empire, the Canadian Empire, or, or any other empire. I, I mean, God is doing something greater here. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the economy and the purposes of God that you, that, that you are in Jesus, that you are caught up in this great cosmic adventure? That's way bigger than just your personal salvation. Do you believe that? Esther's part of that story. You, me, we are all part of that story. We study books like this to help us to understand not just the big picture in Esther, but the big picture in the Bible. Okay? We need to move on. Oh, do we need to move on? Um, Not only do we need the big picture, here's the second big thing. The big question, the big, the, the big question. Um, we need to face the big question. What's the big question? Okay, uh, we're going to go through this really fast. If you haven't read the book, you won't know what the big question is. But if you have read the book, maybe you do know what the big question is. Here's what it is. Where's God in the book? Where is God in the book? Because Esther is not simply one of two books that is written by women, but it is also one of two books where the name of God in any form, Hebrew, Aramaic, English, whatever you believe, God is not mentioned. Not once. So where is God in the book? Do you know what the other book is? Ha ha, gotcha. Song of Solomon. I love it when I stump you. Uh, the, the name of God never appears in the book of Esther. All kinds of explanations are offered in all kinds of different books and commentaries. I'm going to offer you a much... I, I, I heard a pastor preach about this this week, and I love what he said. This is what he said, and this is what I'm going to go with. I'm just simple enough. This is what he said. I am more simple. Uh, I am just simple enough and content enough to conclude that the reason the name of God is is not in the book of Esther is because God didn't want his name in the book of Esther. If all the events of the Old Testament are in the Old Testament because God intended them to be in the Old Testament, then if his name does not appear in one of the books, if we really believe that this is in the, in, the inspired word of God, then there's a reason. I don't maybe know what the reason is that God's name isn't in the book of, of Esther, but there's a reason, and maybe it's just because God doesn't want his name in there. Maybe it was to teach us that in the events of life that God is, where God seems like he's absent, he's not. But you don't have to add his name to everything to explain his presence. We just went through the attributes of God. We talked about the fact that God is omnipresent. We talked about the idea that God is is there all the time. So you don't have to say God did this and, and God did that and God told me this and God told me that. 
the unfolding story of life is that God is in the details. God is not simply present. If you read, if you read the Bible, God isn't simply present at the big, you know, the big events. God is present at the Red Sea and, and, and then he went away. And God is present at Sinai and then he went away. And God is, is present at the crossing of the Jordan and then he went away. No, God is present in the normal moments of life, in the everyday events of life. He's working his purpose out. If you go to that other book written by a lady or uh, named for a lady anyway, Ruth was going to pick in the fields so that her and her mother-in-law could survive. It was an ordinary event. It was something that she was just going to do to get some food. And through that ordinary event, she met Boaz. And Boaz was their kinsman redeemer. And, 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 and through that remarkable story, the, the line is preserved. And, and we get King David. And then we get King David's greater son, Jesus. All because somebody went to pick in a field to survive. God is in control of what happened. And so here's the point that I'm trying to make here. God, although his name doesn't appear, is still working. And you are going to find God at work when Queen Vashti refuses to give in to her husband's demands. You are going to see God at work in the sleep patterns of the king. You are going to see God at work in bringing Esther to the palace. You are going to see God at work even within the hatred that Haman feels for the Jews and, and, and personally for Mordecai. It's a great story. Charles Spurgeon, he once said this about the absence of God. He says, although the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates. And then he says this, I have seen portraits bearing the names of people for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. But we have seen others that required no name because they were such a striking likeness that in the moment you looked at them, you said, that's them. Uh, when uh, I think this was Aaron, I'm, or maybe Ben, I don't know, but one of them drew me a picture once. They were like two. Uh, and they, they drew me a picture of me playing basketball. Um, these are the nets, and this is my number. Um, it's not my number, but the, that was the number they chose. Um, and they put it in there. There's the basketball. Really nice little portrait. Claudette at the top put Myron in there to help me know that this was me because as talented as my children were at two uh, or as, as, as talented as they are at two, I could not tell that this was me, right? But what Charles Spurgeon is saying and what I am saying is that um, we have seen God, that God takes his name out of Esther. So at the moment that we look into Esther, that we read it again and again and again, we look at this, this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment and we go, that's God. That's God. That's God. We don't need a heading. We don't need anybody to tell us who this is because we know it's God. 
Again and again and again and again, we say that's God. When God appears to be the most absent, the lesson is, trust me, he's at work. That's the big question. Big question, big picture. Thirdly, here's the big idea, okay? Well, let's do this quickly. Um, I talk about the first question in the catechism a lot. I don't talk about the second question in the catechism very often. But the second question, or one of the second questions in, in one of the catechisms is, what is God? The answer is this. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his goodness and glory, in his per- power and perfection, and in his wisdom, justice, and truth. And then it says this, nothing happens except through him and by his will. So that's a pretty good summation of the, the big idea, right? Big picture, big question, big idea. The big idea that runs all the way through the Bible and specifically through the book of Esther, nothing happens except through God and his will. It is an emphasis that that runs the course of the book Genesis to Revelation. And you're going to find that in the book of Proverbs, that God is operating in everything that happens. He's directing everything to his appointed end. It says it there in that that reference in Ephesians chapter 1. All this is taking place in relationship to the hostility that exists between the activity of the evil one as he opposes the work of God. And I mean, we could use so many examples. We could use the example of Joseph, how God, (laughs) through this really windy road, got Joseph because he knew that his people were facing starvation at some point in the future, he got this guy. He got the exact guy that he wanted from Canaan to Egypt at just the right time. But what a windy road, Joseph. I mean, he was arrested. He was thrown in a pit. He was accused of uh, adultery. He was, all these different things. He spent time in prison. He told dreams. He was hated by his brothers and his family. And then in Genesis chapter 50, what does he say? You intended all this stuff for evil, but God intended it for good. What was God doing? You know what he was doing? <laughs> he was fulfilling his plan. He was fulfilling his plan in, in Genesis. He continues to fulfill his plan in Esther as part of his big idea. Nothing happens um, except through him and by his will. And if you read in Esther, uh, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, it's a conversation between uh, Esther and Mordecai. I mean, they're passing messages to each other. But basically what Mordecai says is this, Esther, maybe this is the reason that you exist on the planet that your whole life, that God gave you the DNA, that God made you really beautiful to replace the queen. And the reason that you have been brought to this place for such a time as this. To accomplish God's big idea. Because nothing happens except through his will, right? And as we go through the book of Esther, we're going to discover that God is placing his servants in the right spot (coughs) for the right task, for the right moment, and we're going to discover 
that he uses, that he even arranges. Um, even his notice that nothing happens without his permission. Even the worst things that are going to happen to us in our lives are going to turn out ultimately for our good. Do you believe that? I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans. All things work together for good, for, for our good. It doesn't say all good things happen according to his will. It doesn't say that. It says all things work together for good. Because the real test of belief that, that God is in control it's not at the beginning of the song where it says, when peace like a river attends my way. It's at the end of the song where it says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Because it's easy when peace like a river, but when the sea billows roll, boy, that's when it's hard to trust, right? That's the test of providence. That's the test of, of really believing that God is in control and he's got a plan. He's got a big picture. He's got a big question he's got a big idea that he is that we should be able to trust his word and trust that he is involved in the details that nothing even the mess that we see in Israel right now and Palestine and the people that are killing each other nothing is out of God's control as hard as it is to say that nothing is out of God's control do not try if I can be so bold to give you some advice to interpret the events of your life in terms of their immediate impact or in terms of their, their personal relevance because there is no immediate impact and not because there is no immediate impact because there is not because they are personally irrelevant they are relevant but because we might inevitably go wrong when we try to interpret events as they relate only to themselves. See, the people of the Old Testament interpreted events not in terms of me or mine, but rather in, in terms of we and our. Uh, he said, Lord, you, in the Old Testament, it says, Lord, you have been a dwelling place for, for what? For generations, all generations. Part of the challenge of the fast-paced lives that we lead, um, when we need some information, unless we're doing trivia or something like that, but when we need some information, what do we do? We, most of us go to Google. Uh, Gary goes to encyclopedias, but the rest of us go to Google. Um, you know, the, the computer has to run faster. The, ask, the answer has to come quicker. The resolution has to be now. But if you think about it, most of the things that uh, most of the events of our lives are not going to be resolved in that way. Some of us are never going to see our children or our children's children come to the Lord Jesus. I mean, we believe we're going to die in faith believing that God is going to fulfill his promises that the things that we have said are going to resonate and that the spirit of God is going to affect those people that God is keeping them on a long leash and at some point he's going to reel them in. But we might never see that. But, but we do serve a covenant-keeping God. 
That's our promise. That's our hope. And if I, if I try to explain a cancer diagnosis, just in terms of what it means to me, what I do is I miss out on what it means to everybody else. I, I miss out on what it means to my wife or to my children or to my friends or to my community or to my church. What it means is way beyond what it means to me personally. But when I live, or where I live short of whether I live long, those things are not the issue, not in the province of God. That's the big idea, that nothing happens. As hard as it is to say and as hard as it is to believe and as hard as it is to live, nothing happens except for in the will of God. This is what Corey Ten Boom wrote once. She said, my life is but a weaving between the Lord and I. I may not choose the colors. He knows, um, he knows what they should be. For he can see the pattern upon the upper side when I see it only on this, the underside. Sometimes he weaves in sorrow, which seems so strange to me, but I will trust his judgment and work on faithfully because not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly, shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand and the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. See, we only see links in the chain, but God sees from the end to the beginning. And we're tempted, we are tempted, we can't help it, to focus on the small stuff. But when we do that, we risk forgetting the God that we sing to and we worship loves us with this everlasting love. And he's, he's got this unified purpose in all of history. And he's actively engaged in carrying out his will, his plan, his providence. Why should we study Esther? Big picture, God's preserving his people. Big question, where's God? He's on every page. And he's in every moment. Big idea, nothing happens except through him and by his will. I'm looking forward to looking into the book of Esther. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this, uh, these moments. And I thank you for this time that we could spend in your word and considering some of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.